Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters from the Royal College of Nursing. My name's Rachel Hollis and I'm the chair of the RCN's Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse by background. I'm delighted to be joined again by my co-host Julie Green, Professor in District Nursing and Head of School for Nursing at Keele University. Hello Julie, how are you? Hi Rachel, I'm fine thank you. Um, Thanks for inviting me. It's good to have you back. So two weeks into your new job that I think you just started last time we met. That's right, yes, and I'm still here. (laughs) Excellent. And Julie, as well as being a member of our Professional Nursing Committee, you're chair of the um, RCN's District and Community Nursing Forum. Can you tell us a bit more about the forum and and your work? Yes, yeah, um, that's a great opportunity to talk about the District and Community Nursing Forum. And it's one of a number of professional forums that are held within the Royal College of Nursing. I've been their chair for almost four years and I work with a steering committee and we really are positioned to raise the profile of district and community nursing nationally across a range of meetings and a range of of work streams really. Our aim is to ensure that district and community nursing is visible, valued and celebrated and really just at every opportunity to raise the profile of the care that is delivered by nurses and healthcare support workers outside of the hospital environment. Uh, We have 6,466 members um, and we have a very busy Facebook page which is probably where most of our communication takes place. There's 6,550 members on the Facebook page and it's incredibly responsive and very professional. But it's a great um, interactive forum and we're always keen for new members to join us. Bit of an advert there. Thank you. Julie, you're a a district nurse and that's the image that many people have when we talk about community nursing. But actually, there are lots of other roles, aren't there, for nursing in the community? I mean, I think... District and community nursing are one of the larger workforces out in the community and we're often supported by specialist nurses for a range of long-term conditions, hospice colleagues delivering end-of-life care. But then we've got our children's community nurses, learning disability community nurses and mental health community nurses, and then also our general practice nursing colleagues. So so there's a range of workforce. I guess in all of that, the the largest are those housebound patients that district and community nurses have traditionally had as their focus. Thanks, Judy. So with you as our co-host today, this edition of the podcast is going to be all about community nursing um, both during and after the pandemic and all the nursing work that takes place, as you say, outside of, of hospitals. I think the pandemic put community care and especially care homes into the spotlight and in the, the headlines. And of course, throughout the crisis, community nursing staff have continued to deliver uh, care to patients, but don't really seem to receive the same attention that acute services perhaps attract. We know that there's evidence that that care homes bore an extraordinary brunt of excess deaths in the first wave of COVID, study by, undertaken by Manchester University suggests an additional 10,000 people may have died in care homes in the early part of 2020. And we'll talk a bit about care homes later. So what have we learned to, about the community sector? Is it getting the support, the resources it needs? And has COVID exposed cracks in the system that need urgent attention? To help us to understand some of this, we're joined by our special guest, Dr. Crystal Oldman, Crystal's Chief Executive of the Queen's Nursing Institute and also actually a Fellow of the Royal College of Nursing. So hello Crystal and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much Rachel, thank you for inviting me. 
Good. And where are you speaking to us from today? So I'm actually speaking to you from home and I live in East Sussex. The Q&I offices have been closed for over a year now. I've just been to the offices a handful of times since March last year. Uh, but uh, the, the entire team have been working from home. Excellent. So tell us a bit about the Queen's Nursing Institute and some of you thing about your aims and objectives. The Queen's Nursing Institute, as we, we shorten it to Q&I, so the Q&I is the oldest nursing charity in the world. Love to say that. <laughs> and we were created in 1887 by William Rathbone uh, with help and support from Florence Nightingale, his friend, in fact. And Florence Nightingale recognised that the majority of care that happened out in the community was delivered by nurses that didn't have the expertise and the skills and knowledge that they needed to be able to deliver care in people's homes. And uh, we originally created to set the standards and to deliver the education, uh, the knowledge and skills and the training for those nurses to be able to deliver care in people's homes. So that's our origins. And we are now here 130. <laughs> Four years later, um, we're here uh, to support all nurses who work in the community. And there's a wide variety of nurses that work in health and in social care in the community um, in all fields of nursing. And our, it's our, our overall mission is that uh, we are dedicated to improving the nursing care of people in their homes and in their communities and supporting nurses in all of those roles to deliver best possible patient care. We've just passed the one year anniversary of the first lockdowns and, and the first wave. What's the QNI's experience been through the pandemic, um, working with the, the people that you serve? So we've been in touch with all of our members throughout the, the, the pandemic in all those different areas hearing about what the pressures were. And in the beginning, as you will know, and the Professional Nursing Committee will know well at the RCN, the pressures were really felt around PPE, access to PPE, uh, changing working practices in general practice, and the huge, huge pressures within the care home nursing sector. So what we saw in those early days and the new policies that came into place and new ways of working which really supported much better access, uh, good now access to uh, PPE, to testing, test and trace, and also having nurses redeployed into different sectors, but then actually realising that that perhaps wasn't the best way to make use of all the fantastic skills that we have in our nursing profession, that we're now in a much, much better place, I think, than we were. And so much has been learned. So much bureaucracy fell away. So I think we've seen good outcomes of what we've been trying to do for years in the community. And the, sadly, it's taken a pandemic to make it happen. But we have also seen a tremendous toll that it's taken on the nurses who work in the community. And part of that has been being invisible, uh, not being recognised nationally by politicians, never hearing our politicians at Westminster when we had our regular Westminster briefings ever mentioning what's happening in people's homes and the nurses who are taking care of people in their own homes and the huge pressures that there have been in delivering care and specifically end-of-life care. Community services, for example, delivering 85% above their contracted service 
because of the additional work and the particularly the end of life care for people who were choosing not to go into hospices but to remain at home and of course for those that had sadly were dying through the infection of COVID-19. And, and even now, I would say, I was just with um, some of our nurses, our Queen's nurses yesterday. Some of them were uh, district nurses in the meeting. And one of them was saying to me that they are still at, right at this point, 50% more above the number of people that were dying at home this time last year. I know that recently the Q&I has been highlighting kind of the fatigue and burnout of nurses, Crystal, and I, and I guess that that comes from these very high workloads and, and, and high pressures. Do you think that that's something that you know, we're finding ways of addressing that effectively, that, that level of, of fatigue and, and burnout that we're seeing in, in some of our nursing colleagues? I think there's been a really good response to that in offering in terms of the NHS um, and other organisations offering opportunities for psychological support, for listening support, for emotional support. I think there is there, there has been a really good recognition of that. I think one of the challenges is that it's nurses, what they tell us is that they don't always want to talk to somebody within their own organisation. It's really hard for nurses to admit that they are feeling under pressure. This is not a short term. This is long term as well from what we're hearing too. We started up a year ago, actually it was in May, so it is almost a year ago, a listening service called Talk To Us, which is an anonymous service where nurses can phone up and um, emotionally get support, offload, talk to a trained li- listener who is also a nurse who's, who has worked in the community and understands the context of care that they're working in. But actually, also, we won't turn anyone away. We've had nurses from ITU who are working in ICU that have called us, and we're, we're happy with that as well. Of course, we won't turn anyone away. We're there to listen. We think that our service is being used because it's anonymous and we don't know the people and we don't even know their names particularly, um, but we give them up to an hour to be listened to. And that's also providing us with good insight as to the sorts of pressures that they're under. Let's take a closer look at how the pandemic has really affected the community nursing sector. Experts are warning that without major staffing increases, the sector will struggle to meet the increasingly complex health needs of of patients in the way that's envisaged in in England, certainly by the the long-term plan. Crystal, I think, firstly, even many people working in nursing might not be fully aware of the scale and reach of the community sector. And I've heard it said that 90% of care is delivered outside of hospital. Do we have any, any data on this? Well, that's absolutely right. It is 90%. It is around 90%. There was um, an article in The Lancet in 2016, which detailed some of that, I would say, which detailed the 90%. I think you probably find it's more than 90% that's been happening during the pandemic. And that's because of the work that's been happening in people's homes, the increase in work in people's homes, uh, and the increase in um, the nursing work in care homes too. So yes, there, there is data on that. It includes the 90% includes, if you count general practice as 
uh, community, which we do at the Q&I, that includes general practice. And I think you're right, Rachel, I think it's not well understood. Uh, and that's that it's part of that, the work that's hidden uh, in people's homes and in communities, because it's not taking place in a, a building that's easy to see and recognise. If you were to, one of the things that we quite often say at the q and is if you think about the number of hospital beds that you might have in your local district general hospital, you could multiply that number by three for the number of care home beds that there are in that, that are serving that same geographical area. So that just gives you an idea of the scale. We haven't even started to talk about the number of people who are being seen by mental health services in the community or district nursing services or community children's. So there are way, way more beds in people's homes uh, if we're counting beds. And that's the difficulty, I think. There, you can't. It's like um, comparing apples and oranges. Uh, in the hospital, we, we find it very easy to count beds quite rightly. But in the community, um, because the beds are all behind closed doors, we can't count them in that way. What has the pandemic revealed about the sector then, Crystal? Where has it excelled and what cracks have been revealed? So I think what the pandemic's revealed is the critical nature of the nurse contribution within the community and within the care home sector and within general practice. I think it's provided more exposure and more of a spotlight into what nurses are doing outside of the hospital as well as inside. In the way in which it's excelled has been to to be able to rise to that challenge and to be able to accommodate the needs of people in the community and to find ways in which you, and nurses, as you know, Julie, in the, in the community, work in the community are incredibly creative yeah. and innovative and find ways of dealing with what's in front of you. The unpredictable nature of, of community nursing work is something that we embrace. That's where nursing in the community has truly excelled. Nurses in the community are part of their community and they've worked with them to find ways to address the increased need. And some of that has been about supporting the people that they serve to be empowered to self-care and to find ways of teaching them to self-care. We've also learned about remote consultations and general practice nurses in particular, providing remote consultations, video consultations, which perhaps would never have happened before and might continue after afterwards. So nurses, I think, has, have really excelled at the innovative ways in which they've met the needs of the communities they serve. The cracks that have been revealed, I would say, are around our very fragile workforce in terms of the numbers, not their resilience. They have been amazing. But where we have been saying at the QNI for many, many years that we need a workforce plan to be able to support more people to have their care in their homes and communities. And I think it's really magnified um, and shown that that has been needed for many, many years. And here's the pandemic with even more care in the community, quite rightly more care in the community. But the workforce is now working over and above to fill the time that is needed, the, the workforce that's needed. So we regularly hear about nurses who are working six days a week, not five days a week anymore. We often talk about the community being like a sponge. There's no walls. You can't say no to patients coming onto a caseload. Of course you can't. So um, community provider organisations need to be really creative about how they 
accept more and more and more people onto caseloads. Julie, what are you hearing from from your members through the forum? Yeah, and I think it reflects much of what what Crystal is saying there. I think donation of time to the service, lack of lunch breaks. Um, Interestingly, we in November and December last year, we surveyed our membership and we had about 600 responses. And it was looking at system pressures and patient acuity. And it's coincidental that it that survey occurred during the pandemic because it had been pl- planned since we had a resolution in 2019. But the survey really gave us some stark data about the challenges faced, really. 80% of staff said that their time for visits was insufficient. Only 4% of respondents said they were able to deliver their best care at every visit, at those visits, there was no significant time for health promotion and disease prevention. And we know that they are really significant factors in supporting self-management, avoiding exacerbations of conditions. But really, it, it showed that the pressures were incredibly significant. And also the, the forthcoming pressures or the pressures we're seeing now from long covid with large numbers of of end-of-life cases in the community, but patients being discharged from hospital, very deconditioned, immobile and dependent, and often not patients that were ever known to district and community nursing services prior to their admission. As far ago as 2017, the King's Fund published a document about the impact on district nursing of care well before the pandemic and felt that district nurses were acting as shock absorbers, they were working longer hours and they were missing breaks to deliver a quality service. And I think what we've seen through the pandemic and we're seeing at the moment is that that is, is uh, you know, a number of times worse than it was before. Do you think the government sufficiently recognises the the work, the value of the community sector? I think, I mean, it's often said that we are a Cinderella service. And I know that one of the things that's been raised from our members throughout the pandemic is they felt overlooked. So we had a huge focus on emergency departments and critical care beds, and rightly so. But there was very little mention of all of that care that was delivered outside of hospitals. And I've got a number of colleagues that hate the thought that we refer to hospitals as a centre for acute care and that less acute care takes place in the community because we know that very acute care and prevention of admissions does take place in the community as well. You know, so I think that we are overlooked and I don't know that there's a sufficient focus The resolution that we had passed in 2019 at Congress stated that there was a need for funding and resource to follow the patients so that community nursing capacity could adapt and manage increasing demand. And that's something that I think the government needs to really address, is that funding is equitable for the care provided to that patient the patient numbers, really, and we're saying 90% of that is outside hospitals. So I think we need that re-looking at it. We know at the moment there's work going on about the NHS five-year community nursing plan, and we're hopeful that that will have an impact in this area. There's often a presumption that treating people at home is somehow a a cheap option compared to to treatment in, in hospital, and I guess that's where that kind of issue of funding and resource is so important, Julie. Yeah, and I think in terms of the clinical interventions, 
some will be cheaper. So if you compare a patient on an intensive care, critical care unit over 24 hours, that's very, very costly in terms of medication, the treatment, the, the nursing that's required. So it possibly is cheaper in terms of those interventions. But at the moment, we are under-resourced for the amount of care that is required. So people saying that they're not able to deliver best quality care and there isn't sufficient time to deliver care is significant. You know, I think that although it is probably slightly cheaper per person for the interventions we're doing, it needs investment because of the sheer numbers that, that we're seeing. So, you know, I think we need to relook overall and get the perspective right about cost. And we also know that home is where the majority of patients or all patients want to be, you know, and I think it is looking at where is the preferred location of care so that we can keep people at home and prevent those unplanned and emergency admissions. Crystal, I'm sure you'll know the book by Lord Nigel Crisp, Health is Made at Home and Hospitals are for Repairs. What's the QNI doing to advocate for more treatment outside of hospitals? We will do everything that we can to uh, raise their voice um, and be a voice for nurses working in the community. But I think it's, it's important that nurses have a way of being able to articulate what it is they do and what the value is of what they do. Uh, remembering that these are in the majority nurse led services in the community. If you think about a district nursing service, that's nurse led. And, and the team is headed up by a nurse who has a specialist practitioner qualification. If you think about uh, the care home nurse service, that's a, a nurse-led service. It's like a nurse-led unit, uh, unit in a way in every care home with nursing. And so what we've been doing over a number of years is working with um, the international journalist Suzanne Gordon, who wrote a brilliant um, book, or she co-authored a book a number of years ago called Silence to Voice, What the Public Need to Know About What Nurses Do and the Value of Nurses. And it's her contention that nurses don't speak up enough about what they do. And if they did and the public understood more about it, we'd have a huge amount of public support for recognising what nurses do uh, in terms of their knowledge and skills and the brain work, not just the heart work, which I, we know that the public do understand very well. So we've been doing quite a lot of work around that. And on our website, we've got quite a lot of resource around supporting nurses to articulate their value and to be able to describe what it is that they bring uh, in terms of supporting patients to stay in their own homes and uh, the, the very nature of nurse-led services. I want to talk a bit more about nursing in, in care homes. Crystal, you've already mentioned it but focus a bit more on that and about how badly hit care homes have been by COVID. It's one issue that sort of everyone knows about really that COVID deaths in care homes have declined now to their lowest level since the pandemic began but in the first and second waves that death toll was was really high uh, and very distressing for residents, their families uh, and the people looking after them. Julie, what are the things that you think contributed to this high death hole in the care home sector, particularly in that first wave? I think there were a range of factors and it certainly was a shocking death toll. And I think early in the pandemic, our understanding of COVID-19 and how it was transmitted and just how virulent it was, was possibly not as well developed and as well researched as it is now. We certainly know an awful lot more about transmission. 
I certainly think there were rapid discharges of patients and often those patients had, there was uncertainty about their COVID status. There was a, an active freeing up of hospital beds for admissions. And I think there was some infection going into homes that, that, that was challenging for those homes. Vaccinations, obviously, at that time weren't available. And we are seeing an amazing impact of vaccinations for residents within care homes. I think it was something in, in the recent report, 90% of care home residents in a national picture have been vaccinated now. But obviously, in the first and second wave, that wasn't available. I think there are staffing issues that remain challenging in many care homes. And I think the system creaked in that movements were, there was a movement of patients across those care areas and possibly insufficient staff to, to manage those patients. It's much harder in an environment that has been adapted to become a care home to maintain effective infection prevention and control, staff ratios, dealing with patients that have challenging behaviour and underlying dementia. It's quite hard to maintain infection prevention and control. So I think there was really a perfect storm of many factors that were going on during those early waves within care homes. Hopefully we have learned from those areas and we're in a much better position. And it is great to see, I was watching the news this morning that was looking about changes in terms of lateral flow testing, visitors, I think now two visitors for residents. Um, and that must be so much better because alongside all of this, residents were also very lonely and very isolated from their families. And the nurses and care workers in those homes really provided great support. But I can't imagine, you know, having seen some of the reports on the news, just how difficult it was for some of those care homes and the experiences they had of high death rates. Crystal, I think care home work is often seen as, as less acute or less complex than hospital-based care. And why do you think that is? Where, where does that perception come from? I think the image of a care home nurse has not been great uh, over many years. There's been a narrative which is around uh, care home nursing work being very low level work. It certainly is anything but. Actually, I uh, have come fresh from a care home nurse event this afternoon. We run a care home nurse network and we had an event this afternoon and one of our members gave a story about how they have coped during the pandemic and continue to provide fantastic care throughout the pandemic against all the odds and just as Julie was saying about all the challenges right at the beginning and then the huge difficulty of not having visitors for the residents uh, during all of that time, the number of residents that were lost to the COVID-19 infection and supporting them as, as you would a member of your family because that's how they become in a care home. How she described what they were doing was everything that you would have expected in a hospital environment or everything that you believe that you see in a hospital environment. End of life care, providing everything that you would have in end of life care in a hospital or in a person's home because the care home is that resident's home. Um, and the nurses providing absolute end-to-end -end care in a nurse-led environment. So providing all the care that somebody needs to keep them comfortable, pain-free, and to have a dignified death. And that is all down to the care home nurses. They're dealing with people with multiple long-term conditions, and they're doing it absolutely brilliantly with huge amount of knowledge and skills. Their expertise is extraordinary. 
So one of the things that we were saying at the event this afternoon is that we need to have more of these stories uh, that are exposed and are shared amongst the nursing profession um, so that it's better understood what's involved in care home nursing and that huge amount of expertise that they have. And also with the public too, because it's not until you are either yourself a resident or you have a member of your family, a loved one who's in a care home, that you understand that level of expertise and knowledge that they are displaying every day, 24-7 in the care home. Julie, do you think um, there are other ways that the profession generally can support that care home sector and highlight some of the issues that Crystal's raising there? Yeah, and I think, as Crystal said, those stories from the staff are what we need to get out there that people can see. I think there are other things in relation to working in care homes that need to be addressed and it needs to be made attractive to nurses to see it as a career choice, that there is real progression there. You know, I think it has to have equal remuneration and terms and conditions as many of our NHS areas. And you sometimes hear that that's not the case. So I think it's almost myth-busting in some areas about those working arrangements. I think we could do things with rotational posts so people gain experience to then attract people to working in the area. I think more and more district and community nursing teams are supporting good quality care within care homes that is improving quality and probably exposing more people to experiencing what the service is. And I think we really need to invest in safe and effective staffing in those areas. For me as an educator, it's raising the profile of the quality of those placements One of our limiters is where there is only one member of qualified staff on duty and it's very limited then in terms of students being able to be placed there so that the SSSA standards are implemented and we can support them. So it's looking at how we can improve student experience there so they would see that as a destination on qualifying that would give them a career trajectory but they would be supported on placements and as they preceptor and develop as a qualified member of staff. So I think there is work to do about our perception as nurses about what the experience is in care homes. And like Crystal said, it's often when you've had a loved one who's been in those, you know, been in a care home that you've actually realised what excellent care is delivered in those areas. The final topic for today is one that's important to all nurses, but perhaps especially for those working in community settings. The Nursing and Midwifery Council, the NMC, has just launched a public consultation on the post-registration standards for registered nurses, with particular implications for specialist community nurses across all areas of practice. Julie, can you just explain the consultation, what's being asked and what the main areas are being consulted on? This NMC consultation has a focus on the community-focused specialist practice qualifications and our SCIFN qualifications, which are our um, health visitor, school nurse and occupational health nurse qualifications. So in terms of the SPQ, to use that abbreviation, we are looking at the five routes that are community-based. So that's district nursing, children's community nursing, learning disability community nursing, mental health community nursing, and general practice nursing. 
What it's important to note is that certainly for SPQ, we are aligned to standards that are very dated. So they are originally the 1994 UKCC standards that were reissued in 2001. So we have always maintained that our standards are dated and that they need updating. And the Queen's Nursing Institute did a great job of producing some voluntary standards a number of years ago, which 95% of HEIs that deliver the programme align to. So there has been that modernisation that's available, but the actual NMC standards have remained dated. So it's timely that they are looked at and they are renewed. There's a slight difference in terms of annotation for the two qualifications. So the specialist practice qualification is recorded on the registrant's PIN, it's annotated. For the Skiffen qualification, that is registered on the third part of the register. So it has a slightly different connotation for this review. So I guess the important things for us is that there are sort of three distinct questions. So one is the presentation of the consultation is as a single set of standards for the SPQ qualification rather than bespoke standards for each of those five routes. So that, that, that is a complication. There is a proposal for a sixth generic route, which initially was very welcomed, but that doesn't come with specific standards. It was welcomed in as much as it may, it may encompass some of the emerging roles within the community and those specialist roles. And then there's also the issue of what the impact will be of any changes, both in annotation and the standards that are supporting those qualifications. And I, for one, see a great risk that if we remove or lose our annotation, we may well lose investment in education. Crystal, I know that this is a particular area of concern for you, and you think that the decision to go to consultation at this stage is premature. Why is that and what would the alternative be? Well, we heard from our members that this was not a good time to go out to consultation. As Julie said, this takes in a tremendous amount of concentration and time to read through the documents and to, to complete the consultation. And to do this in a really informed way takes a lot of time to engage with those documents, to understand the educational language, the nature of the educational language that's in both the programme standards document and the standards of proficiency document for both Skiffen and for SPQ. So that would probably take, I would think every individual would take at least two hours to go through the documents and to complete the consultation, possibly longer. And our members were saying, please not now, please not now. We are exhausted. We are on our knees. So we did request that there was a delay until the majority of the adult population had been vaccinated as Julie said, the very target group of those who work in the community, who are supporting the mass vaccination programme and who are supporting huge numbers of people to be cared for in their own homes right now through the pandemic. However, we are where we are. So we need to respond and we need to get those who are working in the community to read the documents. We need to help them to support them to understand the implications of the way in which the draft standards are, are, are presented and to help them to respond to the consultation. And we're going to help them to do that in a, in a number of ways. And um, so, so you're supporting members in response or supporting your members who are responding. But does the QNI have a position at this stage on the consultation proposals? We do absolutely recognise that the NMC have done a lot of work 
over the last year uh, to develop the draft standards. The NMC are quite aware that we don't agree where there are annotations, there are no specific or what the NMC call bespoke standards to support the, that annotation. So, for example, it, with the SBQs, if there is, uh, a, there are five annotations, as Julie said, of district nursing, community children's nursing, community mental health, community learning disability, and general practice nursing. But all of the standards of proficiency are identical for those five. And there is a sixth where there is no annotation, all the same standards of proficiency. And indeed, there, we think that there is a hugely missed opportunity in being able to annotate two other areas of specialist practice within the community where there are nurses who are leading nurse-led services, just like the other five are, and that's care home nursing, which we've talked a lot about, and also homeless and inclusion health nursing. So that with nothing to distinguish between care home nursing, homeless and inclusion health nursing, and arguably, I think one that has been suggested by the NMC uh, is that, that the field of practice, which is not annotated, might be applied to criminal justice, prison nursing. This is a, a wonderful opportunity for a parity of esteem, and particularly with those areas that we've just mentioned, who quite often are outside of the NHS system. What a wonderful opportunity this could be to have an SPQ, which is annotated with care home nursing, giving parity of esteem between a care home nurse and a, and a district nurse. And I, I think Clearly, the consultation itself is going to be a complex one. So I think great that both QNI and, and the RCN are, are supporting members to in responding to it to make sure that the views of those working in these really um, key roles in the community are, are heard in that consultation. Yeah, it's absolutely, ultimately, about patient safety. We're almost at the end of the podcast, and that means a question from one of our listeners. Remember, you can ask the panel anything. Just tweet your question to at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters, and we'll pick one to ask. So this time, Vicky has asked what we think about whether care home staff should have the COVID vaccine as a condition of employment. This has been suggested in a consultation that was announced just yesterday in England. So looking at requiring care home providers to only deploy workers who've received their COVID vaccination in order to protect residents and, and staff. So, um, Julie, what's your view on this? I think what we need to take into account is that often the residents in our care homes are the most frail people within our society and need us to protect them. So I am fully supportive that we need to require it where there isn't a medical reason that a member of staff doesn't have it. So I think if staff can have it, then they should have it. I think the things that go along with that are access to vaccination and the support for staff to be able to to travel to access it or whatever. So, so I am supportive of that consultation and have been looking at that today. Crystal, what are your thoughts? Well, I also think added to that, Julie, um, well, from what Julie said, I would also say investing the time to, to sit with individual members of the team who are vaccine hesitant and are concerned because the evidence is showing that the time spent with individual members of staff does result 
in in being able to bust those myths that they have or the incorrect information that they have about the risks of the vaccine that increases the vaccine uptake. So I think investing the time to have one-to-one meetings to focus on their reservations is really an, a very, very important part of this, as well as what Julie was saying about easy access to the vaccines. Yeah, and I, I think if we go back actually to our very first episode of this podcast, we talked about the mass vaccination programme then with, with Lou Carhill and talked about the importance of providing accurate information and and as you say, Crystal, dispelling myths. But I, I think certainly, and so I think investing time in those discussions, as as you say, and making people sure that people have accurate information. And I think, you know, certainly my view and the RCM position is that health and social care staff should have the vaccination to help protect themselves. But actually that making it compulsory isn't the right Thing to do. The important thing is making sure that people get access to accurate information. And also, of course, as Julie said, access to the vaccine, yeah. because we still know that particularly for those outside the NHS, there are still challenges for some health workers in, in getting access to the vaccine. Getting the vaccine should be made as, as easy as possible. But that in the end, there does have to be an element of um, individual choice but making sure that that's a really informed choice and that there is clear understanding of of benefit and risk. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks to our special guest, Crystal Oldman. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Thank you, Crystal. It's been great to have you here. And thanks to my co-host, Julie Green. Thank you, Rachel. And great to be here with you, Crystal. We'll be back in two weeks' time, so remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts too. It's the best way to spread the word about nursing matters. So thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye.